I'll, uh, I'll add my thanks as well to everyone that attended the, the, the auction last night, uh, donated baskets, supported the effort in any way. Um, you know, God works. He's at work in, in the world. He's at work in our lives. He doesn't have to work through his people, but, but so often that's how he chooses to do it. And it's a, it's a humbling thing. It's a joyful thing. It's an encouraging thing to see that in action. And so I just want to um, just say my appreciation as well and the joy that I saw, the uh, joy that I felt seeing God work in that way. Uh, this morning we are, uh, we're continuing through First John, and we're going to continue to examine this first theme. I'm going to put this down so I can see you a little bit better, George. Got to keep my eye on you. Work through this theme, God is light. So we talked about the theme of light and darkness last week. It's this, it's really, it's a universal way to describe uh, truth and, and falsehood, goodness and evil. Um, we talked uh, last week about how God, because God is light, God, God is true, God is good. So what's being communicated there. John writes in his gospel that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So now that we've established that fact, God is light, we've talked about what that means, I think the next question we ought to ask is, what, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for mankind as a whole? After all, the more we recognize the goodness and the truth of God, the more we maybe look at ourselves and see a lack of those things. The more we understand God is light, the more we might understand that, that we, apart from God, are in darkness. And so the question is, there, is, is there any hope? Is there any hope for me? Is there any hope for you? Is there any hope for us? Now, I can imagine that the, the vast majority of us this morning can answer that question clearly and confidently. And Marilyn just answered that for us, you know, uh, just, just a minute ago. We, we've heard the message of the gospel. We've placed our faith in the one about whom the gospel speaks. But what I want, what I want us to do this morning is, as much as it is possible to, to imagine that, that we haven't previously heard the gospel message. And the reason I want us to do that is, is so that we don't gloss over the incredible implications of the gospel, because they are incredible. You know, if, if along with the familiarity of the gospel, we begin to pay it less attention, we risk dismissing its power, dismissing its importance in our lives. And so, you know, I, I was kind of thinking, you and I can probably all picture a person in our lives who maybe tells the same stories or same jokes over and over and over again, right? Like, you know, we're in a conversation with them and, and we get going, and if there was some magic pause button, you could probably push it and finish the story, or finish the joke or whatever. Maybe that's you in your circle. I don't know. Uh, I mean, what do we naturally do when it comes to the fourth or fifth or sixth or twentieth time that, that we've heard a particular story? 
Right? We might begin to tune it out, not really pay in as close attention, maybe kind of push it to the side and just jump to the end and then re-engage. We can't do that with the gospel message about Jesus. We cannot do that. And so my, my hope is that we can see it with some fresh eyes this morning. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit will impress its, its message, impress the truth of the gospel even deeper into our hearts this morning as, as we spend time together. And, and there's, four, there's four short chunks of scripture that we're going to examine this morning. And, it, and altogether, it's just six verses. But all four of these passages progress in the same way. They all present the reality of our captivity to darkness before then providing the solution, the way to move from darkness into light. So, so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm just going to read the first portion of each of these four passages, and sometimes I'm going to stop right in the middle of a statement. And again, I mean, so many of us know what comes next, but, but let's refrain from just jumping straight to the end and, and truly ponder the reality of, of what's being communicated in these passages. So the first one that we'll look at today is, is in 1 John chapter 1. Uh, it's page 1021 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow there. First uh, John chapter 1, and I'm going to read verse 9, just the first part of verse 9. John writes and says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And that's where I'm going to stop, right there. Now, now that, this is a verse I memorized as a, as a young boy. And, and so it's kind of tough to, to really see it in a fresh way. But, but as, I, as I slowed down and, and studied it these past weeks, I, the Holy Spirit really did bring some new light, light and new depth to it. Um, you know, John begins by describing a scenario where we confess our sins. Now, a couple things there. First, he assumes we are sinful. He assumes that each person reading his words has sins to confess. And, you know, okay, maybe that's a bold assumption for John to make, but we know he's right, don't we? We know John is right in that. Paul, as well, he writes in Romans 3, all have sinned. and We can't argue that. You know, had we, had we been present in John chapter 8 when, when Jesus said, you know, the woman caught in adultery, when he said, well, you know, if, if, anyone here, if anyone here hasn't sinned, you know, you throw the first stone. If we were there, we would have dropped our rock and walked away as well because we would not have been able to cast that first stone. So we're born into sin and we sin. The second thing that, you know, John speaks of not just that reality, but, but confessing our sins. You know, there's maybe a little bit of irony in that we know with certainty that each person sins, and yet there's still that struggle, isn't there, for us to confess our sins? Like, we know everybody else sins. We know that. And yet, man, it can, can be hard sometimes to confess. It's not something that comes naturally to us. We, you know, we see it in children when, when they physically hide when they've done something wrong, right? We can see it in ourselves when, when we try to hide our own sins. 
And really, you know, I, where I stopped in this verse, and I stopped there for a reason, but, but where I stopped probably doesn't, doesn't serve to increase our desire to confess our sins. Our God is faithful and he's just. He responds rightly to us and to our sin. You know, Paul writes in Colossians 3, he says that the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There's no partiality. Psalm 89.14 states that righteousness and justice is the foundation of God's throne. You know, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, we see there was a penalty to be paid for their sins. They were sent out of the garden was, was part of that. So, so the first part of, of this verse, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it, it, it forces us to consider that we are sinful and that we stand before a just and a faithful God. Now, I think I would be quite scared to stand before a just human judge if I was guilty of breaking the law. I would not be real comfortable in that position how much more terrified would I be to stand before the Almighty God who knows intimately the things I've done and who is completely just in all that he does? Now again, we'll we'll get to the good news, but we're going to look at the first part of all of these verses first. So, So let's move on to the second passage this morning. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you can follow with me there. John says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So again, John writes about what happens if anyone does sin. He desires that no one would, but but he knows that, that we do. He knows that we sin. So when we do, John says we have an advocate before God the Father. We have this advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. John calls Jesus the righteous. Jesus is perfectly pure. There's there's no stain of sin in him. He's the only person who's ever gone through life free from sin. And Jesus is the one who stands before God on our behalf. He's our advocate. But really, what can he do in that situation? After all, if God is just, and if we are truly guilty of sin, then what hope is there for us? If you kind of go back to, to like an earthly courtroom uh, setting, you know, if I'm guilty of breaking the law, and if I stand before a just judge, what could my advocate, what could my lawyer possibly do on my behalf? Well, you know, maybe our lawyer could lie, but, but Jesus is the righteous, he's pure, he's holy, so that's not going to happen. Well, maybe, maybe the advocate could find a loophole in the law that somehow allows me to get out of the punishment for, for what I've done. Or maybe the, maybe the advocate could, could bribe the judge to give a ruling that would be favorable to me. But again, when standing before God, faithful and just God, there's no loopholes. There's no loopholes that, that can be exploited. And he's true and good, so there's no bribing him. 
So what could an advocate possibly do on my behalf, standing as a sinful human, standing before a just God? Again, might seem hopeless. And we'll get there. But the next passage continues to highlight just the severity of the situation. So now in chapter 3, look with me at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So when John speaks of lawlessness, the the law he's talking about is, is Old Testament law. It's the words of God given to his people. Through the words of the law, God revealed himself to his people. So when God commanded his people not to lie, for example, he was revealing himself to be the God who does not lie, the God of truth. When John says that sin is lawlessness, he, he notes that really the definition of sin is to live in such a way as to be opposed to the character of God, opposed to the ways of God. And, and, and Paul makes this direct connection between sin and lawlessness as well. Uh, Romans 4, 7, he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. So he equates there lawlessness and sin together. So in my sin, which has already been established, I am a sinner. In my sin, I'm setting myself up in opposition to God. It's not just that he and I have difference of opinion or differences of desires or even different ideas about how to proceed on certain things. By practicing lawlessness, I am directly opposing God. And then finally, the last passage, right? The, the reality just keeps coming. Uh, chapter 3, verse 8, the first part of verse 8 John says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now, John says it in his gospel as well, uh, in John chapter 8, maybe even a little more strongly he, to the religious leaders there. He calls the devil their father, right? He's, uh, he's insinuating that they are children of the devil, which, which he goes on then to, he uses that phrase in verse 10 here in First uh, John 3. You know, when it, when it comes to, to different elements of technology, especially things like social media, for example, you, you sometimes hear it argued that they're just tools that people take and they use them either for good or for evil. It's this neutral thing, and however a person uses it, you know, that's, that's what it ends up doing. Well, the reality is that those platforms, if we talk about social media specifically, those platforms are, are made with certain ends in mind. Right? There's more going on than simply a person choosing to use it for good or evil. I mean, we have decisions to make, yes, but, but there's more going on there. I mean, that's why the CEOs of those companies were before Congress this week, right? Being called to account for these things that they've created. They're not neutral products is what it comes down to. Well, you think about Satan. He's not a neutral being wandering the earth, right? Satan has a certain end in mind. Rebellion against, rejection of God. That's what Satan has in mind. 
And John states that our, our sin places us really in partnership with the devil. I mean, he uses family terms, children of the devil. He puts us in the same family as the devil. The devil is, is actively working in the world and in our lives to lead us away from God. So we can't forget that. We can't forget that the devil is a, a roaring lion on the prowl looking for those to devour. He's not an imaginary figure. He's not an inactive being. He's laboring day after day to lead others into opposition of God. So that's the reality. Isn't that great? <laughs> that is the reality. And, and if we just if we leave it there, boy, that's, that's a very depressing reality. You know, when on our own, we stand before a just God as sinners who've chosen opposition to God, and we have no defense in the matter. There's no defense that we can make. And not only that, we've also aligned ourselves with the enemy of God. We've aligned ourselves with the devil in our sin. So what hope is there in the face of such a reality? Is there any path out of the darkness in which we find ourselves? Well, the good news is there's a second half to all of those verses, all of those passages, and that's where the hope comes from. So we're going to go back and we're going to read those verses in their entirety. And again, let's, let's try to have as fresh of eyes and ears as we can as we, as we interact with these verses. So back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Again, John says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we sin, we, we, in, we incur debt as well as being defiled. Both of those things are true. Our confession of sin allows us to receive forgiveness of our debt and cleansing from our defilement. And we'll get into how a just God can forgive and cleanse in just a moment, but, but let's allow that possibility to wash over us. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, because we are fallen humans living in a fallen world, there's a huge market for things that correct mistakes, right? So there's things, there's products like whiteout, and super glue, you know, dent pullers for the car, um, auto-tune for singing, right? Um, spackle, erasers, tide pens, spell check. I mean, all these things that, that fix our mistakes. You know, I think about that. one of the things that, that, that I find great pleasure in is, is when my kids bring me something that's broken and, and I'm able to fix it. You know, there's, there's just something about being able to solve a problem for, for someone that, that, I, that I find joy in, you know, makes me, makes me feel good. You know, when we come to our uh, Heavenly Father with our broken, cracked, bent, damaged, shattered lives, He finds great pleasure in fixing us. He forgives us of our sins. He, he cleanses us. He restores, purifies us 
of our unrighteousness. And confession opens the door for that. You know, uh, Caitlin has this drawing tablet that broke the other day. What would have happened if she took that tablet and hid it in the back of her closet? It would stay there indefinitely, broken. It, it would just sit there. But what happened when, when she brought it to me and told me that it was broken? Right? It allowed me to work on it. And this time, it turned out I was able to fix it. Right? But it's a, it's a measure of confession there, right? Confessing that this thing is, is broken. And, you know, when we keep our sin bottled up inside, either out of denial or out of fear, we're cutting ourselves off from God's forgiveness and cleansing. You know, if, if we stuff our sin in the back of the closet, it, it's going to remain there indefinitely. The lie whispered into our ear is that hiding it will fix the problem. It'll be better that way. But the truth that John writes for us is that confession will allow God to do his loving work of forgiveness and cleansing. It opens the door for that in our lives. But how, right? I mean, so God is just. How can a just God who deals justly with sin forgive us and cleanse us even when we do confess our sin? Wouldn't that affect his justness? Well, let's look at the second passage and and this time read it all the way through. So 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I'm sure that word propitiation is one we use every day, right? You know, many other Bible translations will use the phrase atoning sacrifice. Um, and, and, and here's one definition for propitiation that I, I think explains things uh, real well. It's a sacrifice that bears God's wrath. A sacrifice that bears God's wrath. So Jesus is the sacrifice that bears God's wrath for our sins. So it's not that Jesus, our advocate, found a loophole or bribed God into not being wrathful. No, he himself bore God's wrath upon our sin. God's just punishment upon sin was given out, but Jesus took it on himself so that we wouldn't have to. You know, it's, it, it's when we spend ample time understanding the first part of these passages that, that the second part just becomes that much more incredible to us. We think about the realities of what has taken place. You know, when, I, when I'm face to face with the reality of my sin and the implications of my sin, then I, I can look all the more intently into the atoning sacrifice that Jesus made on my behalf. Or, or maybe said the other way, the more negative way, if I don't understand the weight of my sin, then I probably don't understand the weight of Jesus' sacrifice. And, I, you know, I, I don't like reading the first part of these passages. I don't, I don't like preaching about how sinful I am and how sinful we all are. It's not my preference to do that, but, but it's essential. It's essential, you know, 
Because when, when I, when we face up to our sin, we find ourselves looking at the loving gaze of our Savior who, who brings about our atonement. You know, to, to truly be forgiven after a mistake is an incredible experience. Right? And there's times where we've experienced that with other people, right? Where we've really messed up and yet we found forgiveness. That is always what is available to us in Jesus. It's not if he will forgive us or to what extent he will forgive us. When we come before him confessing our sin, he will forgive fully and completely. And you know, kind of of as as a quick aside, sometimes our own thoughts, and, and, I, and I've kind of heard it in some teaching from some other people at times, that it might lead us to think that God the Father is, um, is the angry person of the Trinity who can't wait to pour out his wrath upon our sin, and, and God the Son is the one who kind of gets in the way and, and saves us from it. You know, in that scenario, God's intention is to smite us, and, and the Son's intention is to save us. Uh, uh, that, that, is, that is an inaccurate picture of God, of the Trinity. God the Son did not foil God the Father's plan to annihilate us. That sets the two, those two persons of the Trinity up against one another. In fact, God the Father is the very one who lovingly sent his Son in order that we could be forgiven and cleansed. God the Father so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. You know, in, in chapter 4 of 1 John, we'll, we'll see that God sent His Son into the world so that we might live. So it's not, it's not us and God the Son over here and God the Father over here and, and who's going to win out. It, it's not that at all. Each person of the Trinity loves us fully and completely. Each person of the Trinity is involved in our salvation. So if we ever feel like Persons of the Trinity are being set in opposition against one another in that way. We've got to let that go out of our mind. That's not how God works. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all love us completely. Now, if we continue on, we've got a couple more passages yet. So I mentioned all those fixing items, you know, white out, super glue, those kind of things. They do a good job, but but you and I know that when we use them, things aren't usually completely and totally restored. There's, there's usually still some evidence of, of a restoration that's taken place, right? Like if you use whiteout on a paper, like it, it's not all the way smooth. Like you know, maybe the color's right, now it's white, but you can, you can see the bump there. Or, you know, where we've erased something, there's a smudge. Or with super glue, you can still kind of see the crack, right? But... With Jesus, it is not that way. With Jesus, our sins aren't just covered up or painted over in order to to look a little more presentable. So let's look again at at, uh, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 this time. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. So I think sometimes maybe we, we resign ourselves to thinking that there's just certain sins that are always going to ensnare us throughout the rest of our lives here. Certain sins that, 
maybe just don't experience very much victory, but praise God that there's forgiveness, right? I mean, I think, I think maybe sometimes we can be tempted to, um, to think in that way. And, you know, when I think about selfishness in my own life, it, it's almost as if at times I'm satisfied with sin management as opposed to sin removal in my life. If I go through a day or, or a week with only a few instances where I'm operating out of selfishness, you know, then oh, there's great victory there, right? And, and that's not what Jesus came to do in my life. He didn't, he didn't come to earth and sacrifice himself on the cross so I can be less selfish. Right? He appeared so that selfishness can be put to death within me, be taken away from me. If, if I'm ever satisfied with anything less than that, man, then I'm underestimating the power of God's work. Well, please hear me. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that temptation's ever going to fully go away in this life, because it won't. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't celebrate victories where, where Jesus provides where we've, we've failed before, right? And I'm not saying that, but, but we must not believe that there's any sin in our lives that cannot be taken fully away from us must not be satisfied with, with less sin when Jesus has appeared to take away all sin. And again, I mean, we're, we're work in progress, right? So I'm not saying we, we don't rejoice in what God is doing. We do. But if we ever feel good about where we currently are and that, okay, th- this is good, like this is good enough, Jesus has died for more than that. And, and I, you know, I, this next statement I say to myself and, and, and to anyone else who needs to hear it too, it's not a call to pursue perfectionism. Um, it, 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 it's not a call to strive harder in, in, in my own strength to live sinlessly. It's not about that. It's, a, it's really a call to abide in Jesus, to abide in him. And, and we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit more next week. Um, uh, if that's something that struck a chord with you, Spending some time in the first half of John 15 this week might be good. That's, that, that, that passage is all about abiding in Jesus. Jesus has come to take away sin, not just sins of the world, but sin in our life. And let me, for the last passage, let me read the entirety of that one as well. Chapter 3, verse 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So, yeah, the devil's active in this world. He's seeking to lead us into rebellion against God. But Jesus has come to destroy those works of the devil. The, the power of the devil has been destroyed. I mean, he, he, he no longer holds us captive. We've, we've been set free in Jesus, and so we're free indeed. We can now be servants of God rather than being servants of sin. That was our only choice in darkness, to be servants of sin, but now that we're set free, we can be servants of God. So the power of the devil is destroyed. The, the ability of the devil to accuse us is also destroyed. You know, because we've been forgiven in Jesus, because we've been cleansed in Jesus, because sin is taken away in Jesus, the devil's got nothing left 
as our accuser. I mean, he's like a prosecuting attorney who stands before the judge and just has nothing to say, has no case that he can make. And, you know, I was thinking about that this week, and it made me wonder, I wonder if Satan's accusations are even meant to try to sway God's opinion. I think think Satan knows. He knows that the blood of Jesus is effective. He knows that it covers us. He knows that in Christ we are forgiven, redeemed, set free. He knows all of those things. So why would he accuse us before God? kind of wonder if maybe Satan's accusations aren't so much intended for God to hear as they are for us to hear. Right? I mean, he knows he's not going to change God's mind, but, but when he makes those accusations, are they meant for us? Right? When he speaks to us and heaps on the shame and the guilt and the doubt, is that more what he desires, that it would affect us and how we walk in this life? And I think if that's the case, what we need to do is respond back to him with the truth of what Jesus has done, the work of Jesus in our lives, the fact that Jesus has destroyed the works of the devil. Right? So when Satan goes back again and again to the first part of these verses that we've read, we can go to the second part and say, nope, Satan, this is, this is what has happened. God is faithful and just to forgive us sin, cleanse us, from all unrighteousness. He's the propitiation of our sins. He takes away our sins. We can remind Satan and really remind ourselves of the truth of who God is and how Jesus works in our lives. I want to bring everything back to the, to the theme of light. Right? That's kind of what's tying these, these weeks together here. Right? God is light. He's pure. He's good. He's true. We are born into sin. We're born into darkness. And without the work of God in our lives, we will live in darkness and we will die in darkness. But through the work of Jesus, we can be brought into the light. Right? What is, what is true in the first part of those passages doesn't have to remain the reality for us that in Christ the second part of those passages are true. That's the reality of who we are. And so may the message of the gospel, right, the story of the work of Jesus in our lives never become something that we just tune out or skip over because we've heard it so many times. We're we're, going to close this morning uh, like we normally do. We're going to close with some congregational singing. Um, May this not just be singing songs because the words are on the screen and because that's what we do when we end the service. May these closing songs be our declaration. Our declaration to ourselves and, and, and also to the world of the wonderful truth that we've been brought from darkness into light through Jesus. So let's not sing just because it's time to sing. Let's sing because of that awesome reality of who we are in Jesus Christ. So would you stand with me? Let's prepare to do that together. Jesus, we're here this morning, and the only reason that any of us are in the light is because of you. 
Without you, we are completely and utterly lost in the darkness. It is a hopeless situation. God, we're, we're so grateful that you gave of yourself. That you gave of yourself for us. That you would take penalty for our sin. That you would cleanse us. That you would restore us. Take away our sin. God, and we know that was not that was not cheap. That required you to give of yourself completely. And we're in awe of that this morning. God, may that may that truth, may that display of love never never become so familiar that that we kind of gloss over it. Would you impress the the truth and the reality of the gospel deeper and deeper on our hearts the longer that we live. May we never get to the point where we feel like we understand it completely, we know it completely. May we always be seeing new depth there, understanding your love for us even more. God, it's why we're here this morning. It's why we gather It's why we serve. It's why we sing praises to you. And so as we close doing that now, God, may this not just be sounds and syllables and words coming from our mouths. May this be the declaration of our hearts, our proclamation of your love for us, the truth that you've brought us from darkness to light. We thank you for that, God. We praise you because of it. We pray it in your name. Amen.